Thank you, thank you so much. So, if you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and get it and open up to the book of Acts chapter 2. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at a key passage of Scripture from the end of the book of Acts chapter 2 as we begin this new series on being uh, unleashed as a church to be an Acts 1-8 church in an Acts 8-1 world. Um, before we do that, let me just take a second to give you kind of what we see, what we know right now, and kind of let you know when to expect some more information from us as a church. As many of you know by now, um, our Governor Ivy has uh, declared as of Friday uh, that there will be no more limits on gatherings and specifically how that pertains to churches and religious organizations, uh, that it allows us to be able to hold meetings once again here on campus. Um, we do want to still be sensitive to the fact that we still face an ongoing threat with this virus in our community and in our state. Um, we um, know that it's probably not the wisest thing just to go back to doing church, one worship service at 1030 and try to fit everybody in here. We still need to uh, be able to keep good social distancing between people just in case this, this virus uh, impacts somebody within our church family. And um, so we're trying to figure out the best way to do that. And our first solution is that for a short period of time, uh, we need to go to two worship services. Um, our church facility would not allow us to be able to house everybody that normally attends worship and still be able to keep spacing there. Uh, so we have, uh, from the beginning of making these plans, we have thought we need to do at least two worship services. And our plan right now is to do those at 9 and 10.30. Uh, 10.30 allows us to still have that, that regular time that we normally do and the time that you've been uh, tuning in by live stream for those that will still be doing that. Uh, so we're going to try to do uh, a service at 9 o'clock and a service at 10.30. 9 o'clock is the time that many people who come for Sunday school are usually here anyway, so it won't be a big change for you. Uh, but we will need a collection of people that will commit to coming to a 9 o'clock service and a collection of people that will commit to coming to a 10.30 service. We sent a survey out um, earlier in the week, around Wednesday or Thursday, Many of you have responded to that already. You received that in the email. If you have not, check your email box or check the church Facebook page. It's also linked there. Um, we'll be evaluating that this afternoon and tomorrow and kind of see where that falls out and how we may have to contact some people and say, well, you said you would come at this service, but we need you to possibly move to this uh, just so that we can keep uh, adequate spacing here within uh, the congregation. Like many churches right now, we are a little bit concerned about bringing um, our Sunday school classes back on because we're not sure that we can do Sunday school like we want to initially, um, being a fully graded options for all people, plus trying to do Sunday school when we're doing two worship services and where does Sunday school fit in all that is going to be a challenge that we need to try to, we need to, try to navigate through. Um, and so we won't be doing any on-campus Bible study uh, for the next few weeks. Um, we will let you know when we feel like uh, we will be able to bring that on board safely. Uh, that allows us to be able to house groups that still are able to 
have the adequate social distancing in their rooms and also to be able to have all the, the people we need to staff in our preschool and children's work and all that kind of stuff. So just be patient with us as we work through that. Uh, we will only have Sunday morning worship services for a few weeks. We'll see how that goes. And then as soon as we can start planning some Sunday night things, maybe during the summer, we'll let you know that as well. So we hope to send out a, uh, an update on Tuesday um, with some guidelines about uh, coming to church and what you need to do when you come to church. Uh, we will uh, be needing people to be ushered to seats so that we can make sure that we're filling rows up properly, which means that many of you who have your favorite seat in church uh, quite possibly are not going to be sitting in your favorite seat unless you strategically understand how to get here at just the right time to be ushered to that seat. Um, so just be patient with us about that. Uh, uh, that means some of you that love sitting in the back are probably going to be up a lot further in the front than you used to be. So um, just help us out with that, and um, we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes next week. Uh, and then from there, we'll make any adjustments that we feel necessary. But we do believe that we are going to be able to have on-campus services next Sunday, and we're looking forward to having many of our church family back. We also know that for some of you, you're not going to feel comfortable yet coming back to church, and that's perfectly understandable. Uh, there are some that are in those high-risk categories that probably don't need to be coming back right now. And we will continue to offer our live stream services, which uh, Chris and Daniel and our, and our tech crew have done such a great job making sure that that's ready every week. We'll still be offering that on this platform, and you'll still be able to tune in and watch that and be a part of our church uh, worship experience. So thank you for your patience during this time. All right, so let's, uh, let's look at Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start a four-week series today. I didn't want to do a Mother's Day sermon because we don't have moms in the rooms today. Um, or we have a couple of moms in the rooms, but we don't have a room full of moms this morning. Um, and I wanted to do a, a short series in between our series in 1 Peter and our summer series that I'm working on right now. And so we are going to be looking at a, a series called Unleashed, Becoming an Acts 1-8 church in an Acts 8-1 world. And we're going to do it by looking at, at four key passages in the early chapters of the book of Acts that really kind of focus us and help us to understand what it means to be missional disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, the idea for this sermon came from a conversation that I had a few weeks ago in a meeting with one of our denominational leaders, and he made a statement regarding kind of these crazy days that we found ourselves in in the last couple of months. And uh, this, this denominational leader said, you know what, we're, we are trying to be, act, we're trying to learn how to be Acts 1-8 churches in an Acts 8-1 world. And I thought that statement was really, really interesting. I thought it made a really good idea of maybe what, what's going on right now and how do we how do we move forward? What do we do, what, what do, we do next? We, we weren't quite prepared uh, two months ago, three months ago, to have a stoppage in worship services online. We weren't quite prepared to have a total restructuring of programming for, for, for the foreseeable future. And yet, I believe God's sovereign hand is in the midst of all of the things that we've been experiencing. And I believe specifically for Central Park Baptist Church, this kind of gives us an opportunity to kind of push the reset button on maybe some things that we've defined church to be so that we can be better equipped to be exactly what, what this says, to be an Acts 1-8 church in a world where we're kind of living in an Acts 8-1 existence. And to kind of clarify that, I want to I read a, I want to 
give you some background as to where we are in the book of Acts. All right? So first of all, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in Acts 1, Jesus appears to his disciples just before he ascends back to the Father. And as, as he does so, the disciples are, are eagerly filled with messianic expectation. They, they've watched Jesus as he's brought into the kingdom of God, as he's done all these miracles. They've watched him die on the cross. Then they saw him raised from the dead. He's been appearing to, to disciples all throughout about 40 days, in and out, giving instruction. Uh, they, Jesus tells them to gather together on this mountain, and they think that Jesus is about to establish his earthly throne. And they ask him, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, they want to know if Jesus is going to fully and finally take the throne of Israel. And Jesus gives them a very interesting reply in Acts chapter 1. He says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by, its own, by his own authority. In other words, it's not, it's not time for what you think it's going to be. And it's not for you to know what those times and dates are. Then he says in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus tells them that the next chapter in redemptive history is that these 120, 130 men and women are about to be unleashed as his disciples to be witnesses of all that they have seen and all they have heard and all they have experienced. And they are going to be the catalyst which takes the gospel throughout the world. These 120 blue-collar men and women, average Joes, no one really who has any political or, or, or religious clout, these men are going to be the agents that God is going to use to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to the surrounding region of Judea, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And from that point... The rest of the book of Acts unfolds as the expansion of the disciples of Jesus and the early formation of what we know as the church. The word that we use for church comes from a Greek word which literally means called out ones. It means it's used for any kind of assembly or gathering, but it means literally those who are called out from the world to be followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. We are the church. We are the called out ones. And we see this rapidly taking place in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. And right after this event, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples. And as a result of that, they begin to speak in various languages. And there's some, there's some excitement that's brought about as these disciples are declaring the gospel in multiple languages. And there's some confusion. And so people begin to ask, what does this mean? And Peter stands and delivers a very powerful sermon before an entire assembly of people... And he quotes the prophet Joel and he begins to unfold what God is doing and specifically what God has done through Jesus Christ and how the long-awaited Messiah that they had been anticipating had actually come right before their eyes and they had murdered him. Instead of enthroning him as king, the religious leaders murdered him. But that God had raised him from the dead. And these people are deeply convicted at what they hear and they respond, what shall we do then? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. The Bible tells us at that moment, 5,000 people believed the gospel and became followers of Jesus Christ. 5,000. In Acts chapter 6, we see the number of disciples continuing to expand rapidly. We have no real numerical idea by this time, but, but there's probably several thousand, if not a tens of thousands, of followers of Jesus Christ scattered all throughout the city of Jerusalem. And then a pivotal event takes place with the martyrdom of the first follower of Jesus Christ, a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen is killed for teaching the religious leaders how they had rejected Jesus Christ and murdered the promised Messiah. And these followers of Jesus, like Stephen, become the target of persecution by the Jewish religious leaders. Which brings us to Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says this, On that day, on that day after Stephen was killed for faithfully declaring the gospel, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison, and verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So this is what it means to be in an Acts 8-1 world. It means that there's a scattering of Jesus' disciples throughout the world, that they're, that they're facing opposition and persecution for their faith, but everywhere they go, the people of God boldly declare the gospel and people continue to trust the gospel. That happened 2,000 years ago, and that scattering is still taking place today as Christ's disciples are scattered throughout this world to declare the gospel. And what we've experienced in the last couple of months is kind of a forced scattering. We've experienced something that we weren't anticipating as the organized institutional church has been, has been kept from being able to have our on-campus gatherings and the disciples of Jesus have been forced to really kind of live life out in the community and, and, and try to figure out how do we as followers of Jesus navigate these days when we're not allowed to do the vast majority of church on a church campus. That's what we're talking about when we talk about becoming an Acts 1-8 church, a church that takes the gospel locally, regionally, and even to the ends of the earth internationally? How do we become a church that faithfully fulfills the Acts 1-8 mandate in an Acts 8-1 world? The book of Acts is the story about how the apostles in the early church did exactly what Christ commanded them to do in Acts chapter 1-8. And so that's what we want to look at today, is we want to look at what does that mean for us. And before we look at our text in Acts chapter 2, I want us to understand this kind of central critical truth that we see demonstrated in Acts chapters 1 through chapters 8. There's this one critical truth that kind of stands over this entire series, and it's in your notes, and that truth is this. The gospel doesn't create a religious organization. The gospel creates a transformed people. The gospel was not intended to create a religious organization. The gospel was not intended to create an institution. 
It wasn't intended to create organized religion. As a matter of fact, organized religion existed long before the gospel was declared through Jesus Christ and the apostles. And the gospel, the purpose of the gospel is not to create another institutional religion. The purpose of the gospel is to create a transformed people. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And that's the reason why in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, we see these new followers of Jesus literally going, being forcefully scattered into the world and doing exactly what Jesus told them they would do in Acts 1.8. Just as God unleashed the early disciples to advance the mission of God throughout the world, I believe that God wants to unleash us as Central Park Baptist Church to be disciples who make disciples of all nations. This is our missional mandate. This has been my passion and my, my primary message from the time I came to be your pastor almost two years ago, that we are called to be Acts 1-8 missional disciples. And yet, as I listened to that question that that denominational leader said to me a couple of weeks ago when he said that we are learning to become Acts 1-8 churches in an Acts 8-1 world, I began to, I began to, to, to meditate on that in my mind and I began to say, well, how did how did they go from hearing the missional mandate in Acts 1-8 to accomplishing it in Acts chapter 8-1? And to be Acts 1-8 disciples in an Acts 8-1 world, we need to see what the early church was doing in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And I'm convinced that for us to be the missional disciples that God has called us to be, that we need to reevaluate and recapture some of the core practices and convictional essentials that we see in the early church that made the early disciples successful. And so in doing that, we're going to look at four core essentials over the course of the next four weeks. The first of those we're going to look at today, which is biblical or relational community, and it's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So I want to read that scripture for you. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it says, They, these are the early followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, <coughs> to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I preached on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, probably two dozen times in my life. And every time I look at this passage, I see these core essentials of the early church. And there's so many things that we can say about this, but I would summarize what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, with the phrase relational or biblical community. What we see happening is, is the development of what I call biblical community. We see 
thousands, by this time, Peter has preached this powerful Pentecost sermon and thousands of people have been saved and we see the early followers of Jesus coming together and developing into a community of Christ followers in a very, very unique way and that foundation of biblical community is planted very early in the rhythm of life of these early followers of Jesus and I think that's what leads to everything else that happens in the next five chapters. And so let me define for you what biblical community is. Biblical community, in your notes, is simply this. Biblical community is living out the power and truth of the gospel in the context of redeemed relationships. Let me say that again. Biblical community is living out the power and truth of the gospel in the context of redeemed relationships. That's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. That's what we see happening throughout the book of Acts in the churches that Paul plants. We see a group of people who have all come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, who've repented of their sins, who've trusted in Christ, who've, who've demonstrated that by the public act of baptism, coming together in gathered assemblies of called out believers, people who are called out from the world to gather together as new brothers and sisters in Christ, and we see the formation of this new spiritual family on the local level where, where people who had no personal relational connection to one another prior to their uh, receiving Christ now are spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathering together to worship Jesus, to pray to God, to, to study God's word together. This is biblical community. This is what God has called us to as a church. And so I want to give you three, three statements today about what biblical community is according to Acts chapter 2. Three statements, three things. Number one, the grounds for biblical community. What are the grounds for what we would define as biblical community? What are the grounds for living out the power and truth of the gospel within the context of a network of redeemed relationships that God has given us. We see this in verse 42 when it says that these early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. At the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Peter has just preached this powerful Pentecost sermon with great power demonstrating God's dealings with the nation of Israel leading to the coming of Jesus. And as we said, their response to this was, what shall we do? What shall we do, Peter, and you other followers of Jesus? What shall we do? Peter says you to repent and to be baptized. You're to trust in Christ and to repent of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ, and 5,000 people did so. In just the span of a few short hours, the Holy Spirit comes on God's people in a very powerful way, and the followers of Jesus Christ go numerically from about 120 to over 5,000 people. And that brings the question, what do you do with 5,000 brand new converts to the Christian faith who need to be discipled? What do you do with 5,000 sudden brand new converts from all over the world speaking multiple languages who need to be discipled? They have no idea who Jesus is. They have no idea how to follow Jesus. 
and Jesus himself has gone away. What do you do? You do exactly what the church did in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. You start meeting together as followers of Jesus to teach these new converts how to worship Jesus, to disciple them in the essential teachings of Jesus Christ. I think it's important when we look at the gospel and the book of Acts, I think it's important to see that when these new followers of Jesus came to faith in Christ, the disciples did not say, congratulations, you are now a brother and sister in Christ. Now here's what we want you to do. Next week, we want you to show up for a religious gathering that we're going to have. Make sure that you bring a Bible and wear something really, really nice, and we'll see you next week. They don't just take these brand new converts and, and send them off. No, they immediately begin investing in these new disciples to disciple them how to become a follower of Jesus. It's interesting. When the early Christians saw people come to faith in Christ, they didn't instinctively think of church programs. Instead, they thought about intentional relationships. And yet, in the church of the 21st century, most of the time when we see new people come to faith in Christ, we start talking the language of church programs. Well, you need to come to Sunday school at this time. You need to come to prayer meeting at this time. You need to do this. You need to do this. Instead of investing in intentional discipling relationships with people who've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know what your experience was like, but, but after I became a follower of Jesus, that's pretty much what happened to me. I'd been going to church for a long time. I'd heard the gospel for years and years and years. But when I became a follower of Jesus, I was told that what was expected of me is to show up for Sunday school and to show up for discipleship training and to show up for youth choir and to show up on Wednesday night for a Bible study, and to do the best I could to be a good Christian and not to make poor choices. That was pretty much the level of my early discipleship. That's not the way the early church did it. They didn't think church programs. They began to think intentional relationships, and they began to immediately figure out ways to live out the power and the truth of the gospel in the context of these newly formed, redeemed relationships. Verse 42 says that the early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to four things. I love this idea of devotion because this, this idea of devotion tells us a very important principle and that is that the gospel rightly applied changes our affections. The gospel changes what controls our hearts and it, can cha it changes what our hearts desire. Prior to becoming followers of Jesus, these people did not desire to gather together with people that they didn't know and to sit and study the teachings of a, of a Jewish rabbi. They didn't desire that, but after they came to faith in Christ, there was an immediate change in their desires that resulted in an immediate devotion to some core essentials. These four things became the center of the relational dealings of the early church with one another, and everything that they did focused around these four things. Now we're going to talk about those here in just a moment, but it reminds us of this truth, which is in your notes. Biblical community begins with a collective commitment and devotion to gospel essentials. If we're ever going to develop biblical community within a church, true biblical community begins with a collective commitment as followers of Jesus and a devotion to the essentials, the fundamentals of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, true biblical community doesn't happen just because you put a few Christians in the same room together. 
It happens when you have a group of Christians who are collectively united to the gospel essentials and are pursuing Jesus Christ together. When you have a group of followers of Jesus who are collectively united to one another and are pursuing Christ, that's where biblical community begins to happen. I've had deep biblical community and experienced that in Africa with brothers and sisters in Christ, even though I've only seen them a few times. I could leave on a plane today and fly to Uganda and gather together with my brothers and sisters in Christ in Africa, and there is a bond, there is a relational connection, there is a a sense of spiritual family that I have with them, even though I haven't worshipped with them in almost a year, even though I've only been to Uganda four times, I have incredible community with those missionaries and with my Acholi brothers and sisters in Christ, and even some pastors that I met when I did a pastor training last year that I've met one time and spent four days with, and yet I have a deep level of biblical community with those guys. At the same time, I have been in churches, and probably you have too, where you sat together in a room with a bunch of other people who were committed to following Jesus Christ, who were so-called Christians. You sat together in a room with all of them, and you didn't experience a level of biblical community with them. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I've enjoyed in my Christian experience, I've enjoyed going to Christian concerts. My family and I, we love to uh, listen to Toby Mac. We've been to two or three Toby Mac concerts. Went to Toby Mac concert about a year and a half ago. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the concert. I sat together in an arena with thousands of Christians all singing the same songs that Toby Mac was singing, all enjoying the, the show, but I didn't experience community with those believers. I didn't, I didn't really experience something that felt like a brotherhood or a sisterhood in Christ. I went through a really good Christian entertainment program. And yet what happens a lot of times in our churches is that people show up each week and they are not committed to gospel essentials when they show up. And so what they do is they they commit to personal preferences, they commit to religious entertainment, they commit to political or social posturing within the church, but they don't really experience biblical community with other Christians, with other believers. That's because biblical community begins with a collective commitment to the essentials of the gospel. What are those? Let me give you. There are three gospel essentials that you and I need to be collectively committed to. The first of those is we need to be collectively committed to the Word of God. It says they were committed to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the daily instruction of the apostles who taught them about who Christ is and what Christ did. The apostles were eyewitnesses themselves of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of the apostles was the foundation of the early church and the foundation of sound doctrine. Biblical community can only happen in a church when the members of the church are collectively committed to pursuing sound doctrine as, a, as a followers of Jesus Christ. When people have a deep hunger to know God's word and to pursue righteousness together as followers of Jesus. Giant religious spectacles where hip preachers spend 30 minutes imparting religious life instruction does not develop true, lasting biblical community. 
Going into a room where, where there's lights and sounds and lasers and an incredible singing experience does not develop biblical community. Biblical community happens when the people who are gathered are collectively committed to the Word of God. It also happens when we are collectively committed to Christ-centered relationships. Verse 42 tells us they were not only devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Fellowship is one of the most misused words in the modern church. We usually mean by fellowship a gathering where we eat food and sit and gab with one another. And there is a, an element of that when in biblical community. We see that here when the church a lot of times gathers together and eating meals together is a central part of what they do because there's something that happens when, when Christians come together and eat meals. There's something that breaks down relational barriers when we're able to do that. But fellowship is not a matter of grabbing coffee and donuts and talking about football uh, games outside the church office. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is not something that automatically happens just because somebody brought a bucket of chicken to a dinner on the grounds. That's not fellowship. The early Christians, they were devoted to, to koinonia, to gathering together, to being a family with one another. The Greek word koinonia means a mutual sharing in Christ and a collective participation in the gospel means that they were committed to Christ-centered relationships. When the early Christians gathered together and were devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread, what they were really committed to was pursuing relationships where one, with one another where Christ was the central hub. But not only were they committed to the Word of God and not only were they committed to Christ-centered relationships, but the Bible tells us that the early Christians were committed to the practice of prayer. The Bible says they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to collective times of communication with God. And prayer together as believers was the glue that held them together. Too often in our church experience, we have made prayer little more than a private practice that Christians could engage in. Prayer meetings in churches are usually simply times to review who is sick and in the hospital, and to have a short prayer led by a pastor or a deacon. And when you ask for a volunteer for prayer in most churches, you get what I like to call the Baptist eye shuffle, as all of a sudden everybody's eyes turn down. But the Bible tells us that the early church was devoted to praying together. And the truth for many of us is that while many of us believe in the power of prayer, we simply don't believe in the practice of prayer. And we need to recapture that as God's people. We need to feel comfortable going to the throne of God with our brothers and sisters in Christ and praying together as believers. If we're going to develop biblical community, it's going to take a devotion to the Word of God, to Christ-centered relationships, and to the practice of prayer. This is the grounds for biblical community, but I want us to see the glory of biblical community in verse 43. Verse 43 says that all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I don't want us to get too caught up 
in these many wonders and signs that were being done. Certainly the early church experienced many supernatural, miraculous signs being done through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And many of these things were done at that time to help validate the authority of the apostles and to awaken people to the ministry of the apostles. And what we see is by the time the the early church and the, the apostles begin to die off, we see a lessening of these miraculous signs and wonders that were being done and more of a, of a central focus on the doctrine and the teaching of the apostles. What I want us to see is that the experience of true biblical community in the church developed a collective awe among the people of God. See, that awe came upon every soul. This word awe is a fascination, an amazement at something that transcends us and something that is greater than us. This idea of awe is the deep longing of every human heart. It's, it's, it's the longing of our hearts to be filled with glory and wonder in the deepest recesses of our being. Paul Tripp has a book on this subject called Awe, in which he speaks of the centrality of awe in the life of followers of Jesus. He says... I came to see that I was wired for awe, that awe of something sits at the bottom of everything I say and do. But I wasn't just wired for awe, I was wired for awe of God. No other awe satisfies the soul, and no other awe can give my heart the peace, rest, and security that it seeks. I came to see that I needed to trace awe of God down to the most mundane of human decisions and activities. Luke tells us that after these thousands of believers all responded to the gospel and became indwelt by the Spirit of God, that there was a collective sense of glory and majesty and awe that settled over them. And in your notes, I put this statement. When a church experiences true biblical community, there is a tangible yet supernatural manifestation of the Spirit of God. Whenever a church begins to develop what the early church experienced, this level of deep biblical community with brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a tangible yet supernatural. There's something tangible in the room, yet it is mystical and supernatural. We can't bottle it. We can't define it. We can't manufacture it because it is the manifestation of the Spirit of God. God is telling you and me in Acts chapter 2 through the experience of the early Christians that when the church is pursuing deep biblical and relational community by the power and truth of the gospel in the context of redeemed relationships that something supernatural happens among us that cannot happen in the privacy of our personal experience with Jesus Christ. I think that's exactly what we are missing by doing live stream worship and not being able to gather together as followers of Jesus Christ. There's something supernatural that happens when the church gathers together that cannot happen over a video camera. It cannot happen when you're singing worship songs in your car. It only happens when the people of God come together and a sense of the manifestation of the Spirit of God begins to rest over us. That's where true biblical community starts. This is the power of a church where all the members are committed to the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God, to Christ-centered, focused relationships, and to the power and practice of prayer. And I put this in your notes. The glory of biblical community is simply this, the promise that God dwells among His people. 
The glory of biblical community is the promise that we see over and over and over again that God dwells among his people. In one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, we have in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 20, the promise that if two or three on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We like to quote this whenever we talk about gathering together for church, but that passage is actually given within the context of the church having to enact uh, personal discipline in the church for outward sin. That when we see sin in the church as the church, we have to gather together to deal with that. And in the midst of that promise, there's this embedded promise that we all instinctively know that whenever two or three followers of Jesus gather together in the name of Christ... There's a, there's a dwelling of God among those people. When the early uh, Israelites were leaving Egypt, going to the promised land, God instructed them to, to, to construct a tabernacle and to put the tabernacle in the center of the encampment. And all the tribes of Israel would space out on each side from that tabernacle and all of them would pitch their tents in order to face the tabernacle because God wanted them to know that God dwells in the midst of His people. Don't you want to be in a place where the Spirit of God dwells? I know I do. Don't you want to be in a place where there's awe and wonder that fills our hearts every time you gather together with the people of God? This is the glory of biblical community. And it is something that only the church has a corner in the marketplace. And this kind of glory and awe cannot be manufactured by the world. So we see the glory of biblical community. But finally and quickly, we see the goal of biblical community. Verses 44 through 47 demonstrate for us that in a matter of just a few short days or weeks, the manifested presence of the Spirit of God resulted in a gospel-transformed people, and it resulted in something supernatural. It resulted in, in something that didn't exist before. That there were, there were five key markers of the early church that, that we see in verses 44 through 47. And the first of those markers was unity. We see gospel-centered unity as a goal of biblical community. Verse 44 says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. What does that mean? It means unity. It means all the parts of the church are moving collectively in the same direction. And that there is great beauty and power in a unified church, in a church that's united around the Word of God in Christ-centered relationships and prayer. Paul pleaded with the Philippians to have unity of mind in Philippians chapter 2. Paul reminded the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 about the critical importance of unity. Unity comes when the people of God who have believed the gospel come together and they have all things that matter in common. Unity does not mean uniformity. It means that there's great unity in the midst of our collective diversity. It means that only in the body of Jesus Christ can wise senior adults and young parents be brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping and pursuing the same thing. We need each other in the church, and we need unity, and unity is a byproduct of community. We also see ministry in verse 45. 
The Bible tells us they were selling their possessions and giving the proceeds as everyone had need. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in another passage in Acts chapter 4 when we talk about generosity a little bit later on. But there was a great amount of need that developed in the early disciples because you had thousands of people who were displaced from their homes who had come to Jerusalem to stay for a week for a festival and instantly became followers of Jesus and had no place to live, no food, nowhere to go. But they wanted to be around other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so these early Christians began to take the things that they had that belonged to them and to sell them and to minister to the needs of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Ministry happens when biblical community exists. But we also see that there's great grace that comes together when biblical community exists. Verse 46 tells us that day by day they went to the temple together and they broke bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What is Luke talking about? He's talking about the the power, the experiential power of collective grace. Those early disciples wanted to go to the temple together to go and, and take part in their Jewish prayers as followers of Jesus together. They didn't just want to go in their own personal times. They, they went to the temple as one and they went to experience prayer together as one. And then they went to each other's homes and they shared meals together as one. This is the power of grace. Grace is the understanding that we don't exist in a vacuum unto ourselves, but that we exist in order to live life together as followers of Jesus. A fourth thing that happens that we see is worship. The Bible tells us that they were praising God. There was a sense of worship and awe. There was a a collective focus upward to the Lord because they sensed that something supernatural was happening. And what do they do? They give glory, majesty, worship, and worth to God. That's worship. And then finally, we see a product of biblical community is multiplication. The Bible tells us in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Bible tells us they had favor with all the people. This means that those who didn't know Jesus yet saw the power of what God was doing in those who did know Jesus, and they had favor over them. That favor didn't last long. And soon the church began to be persecuted and scattered, but there was favor such that every single day as these people lived in biblical community with one another, there was an evangelistic multiplication that took place as people who didn't know Jesus were attracted to what was going on in the people who did know Jesus. Don't you want to see that happen today? Don't you want to see people who don't know Jesus showing up at church because they don't understand what's happening. They just know that every single time they come across people from Central Park Baptist Church that there's something supernatural happening and they got to get there and figure out what it is. That's what happens when we commit to biblical community. Surely you didn't decide to become a follower of Jesus so that your name could be put on the membership role of a local church and so that you could have your own personal seat for religious programs and and take part in some other programs every once in a while as long as it suited you. Surely that's not why you repented of your sins and trusted the gospel. You followed Christ because you wanted to know Him and you wanted to be a part of something bigger than you. And so it's important for us to understand when you became a Christian, God did not invite you into a private religious experience. He put you in a local church. He put you in a koinonia, a fellowship. 
God recreated you in Christ to experience true relational biblical community with other followers of Jesus. And so in closing, how do we get there? We're going to unpack that over the course of the next few weeks. But how do we get there? Let me just give you this statement and then we're done. Community doesn't happen in the big room. Community happens one relationship at a time. Let me say that again. Community doesn't happen in the big room. Community doesn't happen when you gather a bunch of Christians together in a worship setting. What happens when the Christians come together and worship is a byproduct of community that happens when the church comes together one relationship at a time. And so what we need to do as a church is we need to take this value of biblical community and begin to unpack that and infuse that in everything we do as a church. We need to evaluate why do we do Bible studies? Why do we do Sunday school? Why do we gather people in groups? Why do we offer certain programs? And we need to make sure that every one of those programs is designed in such a way that it helps us to develop true biblical community and not just offer options for Christians to take part in. It's what I want to be a part of, and that's what we're going to be looking at as we look at being unleashed to be an Acts 1-8 church in an Acts 8-1 world. In closing, let me just say to this, if you're watching this service today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've never truly believed the gospel, you've never truly repented of your sins, you, you've never truly asked God to forgive you for the things that you've done, then talking to you about being a part of a biblical community in a church makes absolutely no sense. As a matter of fact, the worst thing I could do to a, to a person today who's not a follower of Jesus is invite you to be part of a local church. Because you can't be part of the koinonia until you've been brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ. You can't be part of community in the church if you've never been a believer in Christ to begin with. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, today if you, if you have lived your life separated from God, you've never truly trusted Christ and repented of your sins, we invite you today to enter into the fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We invite you today to repent of your sins, to trust God where you are, to, to simply bow your head and to pray a prayer and just say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I've, I know that I've done things that don't please you and and I ask you today to forgive me of my sins and to, to come into my life and to change me. I, I confess my sins, I, I repent of them, and I trust you. You can simply pray that prayer right there where you are. Because becoming a part of the community of the church doesn't happen until you become a part of the family of God. So we invite you to trust in Christ today. Let me pray over you, and as I do, we'll, we'll close our message today and thank you for your time today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the power of your word. I pray, God, that we would be more than just hearers of the truth. I pray would we, we would be doers of the truth. God, I pray that you would help me as pastor, our leaders here at the church, and every member of Central Park Baptist Church to do everything we can to be a part of developing true relational biblical community here in our church. God, may... May you do something supernatural among us that cannot happen outside of the, the, the gathering of God's people together. God, we thank you that even in the midst of this challenging last couple of months, that, that there's a longing that's been stirring in our hearts for something that many of us can't define, when in reality what it is is that we're longing for community. We're longing to be together again with our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we thank you that there's at least an opportunity to do that soon, and we pray that you will help us to do that even better in the days and the weeks ahead.
Finally, Father, I pray for anybody who's watching this today who's not a follower of you, God, that you would, you would impress the gospel into their hearts. You would give them faith to trust you today and the courage to surrender their lives to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to put up on the screen there my name and my phone number, my email. If you have spiritual questions, you want to talk to somebody about being a follower of Jesus, you can, you can send me a text or a phone call or you can email me and I'd love to talk to you more about that. Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, next week we hope to come to you live but with more people in the room and uh, we look forward to joining you then. Thanks again. Hope you have a great Mother's Day.